Hi friends, welcome to Preacher, a podcast designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. I'm your host, Jen Hale Christie, and this is season four. We have a wonderfully supportive and encouraging Patreon community. Sarah, Lauren, Dave, Steve, Mark, Sheila, and Tom, I thank the world of you all, and I thank our God every time I remember you. If you are a listener who hasn't yet joined our Patreon community, now is a great time. Your support keeps this good work going, so thank you. Links are in the show notes. Friends, tensions are high in our country right now, and it feels like, in many ways, for me anyway, we've been living in one long apocalypse, an unveiling, for nearly four years. There is so much coming to the surface and drawing national attention that has probably always been there, but some of us are just now becoming aware of the depth and the intensity and the sheer number of instances and the horror of it all. May we be ever awake to injustices, to racism, and all the other isms that dehumanize and demonize people. May we use our voices and influence to address and resist the powers and principalities at work around us. May we be people who resist evil in its many forms. We've been working our way through the Book of Acts this season, and we had a different episode scheduled for today, but we just had to interrupt that schedule um, to hear a timely word from my dear friend, Mallory. So today, she is bringing us a powerful word from the letter to James. Afterwards, we've got an interview, and she's just phenomenal. She shares a lot about her work, um, her nonprofit work, um, as well as personal life, and um, I encourage you to stick around for that. So may this word unsettle us, may it inspire us, challenge us, and keep us ever awake. Hear now these words from James 2. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to those who love God? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? 
If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2015, I had the opportunity to spend a week traveling the southern United States on a civil rights pilgrimage. We toured museums, and we heard firsthand accounts, and we sang freedom songs, and we wrestled with the brutal realities of racism. The trip was equal parts empowering and devastating, exhilarating and haunting. You cannot cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge or stand behind Dr. King's pulpit or hear the compelling words of Malcolm X where they were first spoken and not feel the spirit of the very people whose lives were given in pursuit of justice. I felt them with me as I stood in the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. This museum is situated directly between two sites of violence and terror. On the one side is the town square where children were tortured with water hoses and chased by dogs during their nonviolent march in 1963, and on the other side, the 16th Street Baptist Church, where four precious young girls were murdered by a white supremacist several months later. I felt their spirits, too, as I walked through this museum, surrounded by the past that devastatingly did not feel very distant. At one point, I stood in front of two large pictures. One showed a common scene of angry white men and women with snarled faces and palpable rage, almost taunting the black person they surrounded to believe he or she had human rights. The second image showed a crowd of black men and women marching from Selma to Montgomery intent on exposing systemic racism, joined by a small handful of like-minded white men and women. I stood in front of these images for some time, seeking to find my place in them and posing to myself the questions that many grandparents fear hearing from their grandchildren. Where were you? When all this was happening, how did you respond? After honest self-reflection, I couldn't place myself among the crowd of angry, violent whites. I couldn't picture myself in their ranks, screaming at and spitting upon another human being. But this brought no measure of comfort because I was equally unable to place myself in the second photo featuring men and women marching to justice. I felt certain that I would not have been in the camp of the outspoken white supremacists, but I wondered, would I have been in the other camp? Would I have bravely shown up to march or risk my safety or use my voice and body to protest? Or would I have straddled some supposed middle line, believing myself better than the KKK member, but nonetheless unwilling to offer a thing for the sake of justice? 
Would I have been able to name a coherent rationale for the equality of all human beings, but articulate it just enough to show I'm not one of the bad ones and really do nothing more? Is that the very thing I'm doing now? These are haunting questions. They haunted me that afternoon in Birmingham and they haunt me now. These are the types of questions our brother James poses to us in his rather rambling sermon on practical religion. Drawing from his Jewish roots, James writes to Christians scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, and in his seemingly disconnected thoughts about money and wisdom and trials and taming the tongue, he seems intent on stating and restating and emphasizing the singular point. Faith without works is dead. And let us not for a second allow this text to send us into endless debates about what we must do or not do for our souls to be saved for heaven. In doing so, we castrate the very concept of salvation and we eclipse James's message to us that is that all of the thoughts in our heads and beliefs we put on paper are absolutely worthless, useless, and dead as a doornail if they do not issue into substantive and corresponding action. James's words have played over and over in my head in the past year. If you're anything like me, you have found, as of late, no shortage of news clips and sound bites to enrage and provoke and disturb and disgust you. And in these moments where there is so little in which to find comfort or peace, I sometimes offer myself solace, saying, Remember, you didn't vote for this man. You didn't help elect him. You don't agree with his policies. And the pleasure I find in this self-justifying salve for my frustration is, I am convinced, more dangerous than the man himself. Dr. King knew this well. In an open letter penned from a jail cell in the same city of Birmingham, he responded to the white clergy that decried the marches and sit-ins and open displays of civil disobedience. Like me, These white moderate were not featured in the photo of racist whites shouting down their black neighbor. Like me, their racism was much more subtle and less discernible even to themselves, but ever the more real and present and deadly. Their stated belief was pro-equality and anti-segregation, but they used their energy and action to critique every possible move of those who did not merely claim their beliefs but put their bodies on the line for it. Dr. King was so tired of the, quote, pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities mouthed by the white moderate that he named these moderate clergy a greater stumbling block for black liberation than white citizens' councils or the KKK. But we would never find ourselves among those white moderate who polish their ego with self-congratulatory reminders about their stated beliefs over and against that of number 45. We would never be like the ones whom our brother James critiques in this text. We would never claim the lordship of Christ with words, but with action and hear ourselves to the gold-fingered men and women whose power and approval we crave. 
We would never pride ourselves in not using the N-word while finding all manner of race-neutral language to reveal our true beliefs about people of color. We would never seek to counter the simple claim that black lives matter by insisting on the use of generalized value statements that reveal the need for such a specific campaign in the first place. We would never claim the value of the right to protest while critiquing virtually every chosen method of protest people employ. We would never preach sermons about God's concern for the poor while deluding ourselves into believing that all the wealth at our fingertips is simply the result of hard work and industry. We would never be more angered by an athlete kneeling at an anthem for Caesar than we are by the abuse and violation of image bearers of God. We would never claim to believe in gender justice while asking the women in our churches to keep waiting for full equality and to be grateful for the strides we've made. We would never decry violent protests in Baltimore and Ferguson and Minneapolis and care nothing about the violence of systemic racism and discriminatory housing practices and substandard education in these same cities. We would never claim to be pro-life but find reason to justify the incarceration of 2.5 million men, women, and children in the United States. We would never state our belief in women's equality and be more concerned with what hats some women wear at rallies than with the sexual assault they face daily. We would never sing words like, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, but refuse to open our churches to persons being hunted for deportation. Would we? As I stood staring at the two images before me in the Birmingham Museum, I felt the presence of all those who risked so much for the sake of justice, who refused to accept the social order but instead disrupted it at every juncture in which it fostered inhumane and evil treatment of human beings, who were congruent in their beliefs and their actions. But I also felt the presence of my soon-to-be daughter, I imagine standing with her not only in this museum, but in the museums of the future, the ones that will detail the justice movements of today, and I heard her ask me the questions I was afraid to answer. Where were you when this was going on? What did you do to help change it? And in an instant, I knew I would never be able to claim that I was a product of my time and that I saw things the same as others did and that this was just the way things were. Because this is a laughable excuse and it is bullshit. We are not products of our time. We create the products of our time and we sell them for profit at others' expense and invent narratives to incentivize their purchase and we join hands with the gold-fingered men and women as we cling to the privilege of all we've created. But I'm tired of creating products that lead to death. I'm tired of claiming belief in Jesus but opposing him in my actions. I'm tired of being so incongruent that I can't see straight. And I think my neighbors are tired of this too because faith without works is not only dead, it is deadly. And so with the church, I pray this common prayer of confession and of hope. 
Almighty God, our Creator, we have sinned against you and our neighbors through our own fault in thought and word and deed and in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you and our neighbors in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Hello, Dr. Mallory Wyckoff, and welcome to the Preacher Podcast. Hello, Fran. It is good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for preaching a word for us. It's so good to see your face um, and to be with you and to hear your voice um, for our listeners. Mallory is a dear friend. Uh, We met actually back years ago during the Doctor of Ministry program at Lipscomb. Yeah, I don't even know what I mean, honestly, I'm not even sure what day of the week we're in right now or month or year, to be real frank. So to try to think back to when that was. It, it was in the 21st century, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> also might have been 2013. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you, let's see, it was my second year. You were coming in as a first year. So like our, the cohort ahead of us had gone and we just had five people in our cohort and we're kind of insular and there's this whole new group of people came in and we knew several of them, but we didn't know you yet. Yeah. And you were like this beach babe strutting in <laughs> and then you were really smart too and so intimidating, so well-spoken um, and turned out to be an amazing preacher too. Honestly, um, of all those things you just said, I'm most flattered by the beach part because <laughs> that's my roots and you connect me there. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> right, because you're in Nashville now, but you're from Florida. Yeah, from the that's beach, correct. Right? I am, I am from Clearwater, Florida. Very proudly so. Yeah. Mm. But I'm in Nashville now. And what are you doing in Nashville? Lots of things. So firstly, I'm keeping a three-and-a-half-year-old and ten-month-old alive. Got uh, two little girls, Olive and Ivy. They're fantastic. My husband, Tim, married for almost 12 years. And vocationally, I'm, I just always am spending multiple plates. So I'm uh, first executive director of a nonprofit called Faith and Culture Center. And we are building more inclusive communities by helping people get to know their neighbors. And mm. we're doing lots of work around bridging divides of religion, race, ethnicity, and culture, and bringing people together diverse groups together around uh, shared tables for meals and conversations about things that really matter. And so that's really good, important work. It it matters. And Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to be part of it. I teach in the Bible department at Lipscomb university. I am a spiritual director and offer direction to uh, individuals. I work with uh, our doctor ministry students, the program that you and I uh, finished whenever that was, here <laughs> um, but supporting our students as they're doing research. And then I also teach and train other folks to become certified spiritual directors. And I really, really enjoy that work. So, um, and then in all my free time, I take a lot of naps and just. <laughs> I was going to say, so you, you don't sleep then because that was like how many, five, six full-time jobs I, that you just listed off? That's possible. They're not all full-time, but, um, but you are correct that Sleep is not always possible, but that's mostly with, from the kids. I'll blame wow. that on them. Yeah. Wow. So the nonprofit that you're the executive director of, tell me the name yeah. of that again one more time. 
Faith and Culture Center. Faith and Culture Center. And so in light of national events, what has your work there shifted? Like what's, what's the conversation there? Yeah, uh, it has been a conversation at daily actively our team kind of figuring out, Hey, what is our response? Like, what are we being invited to do? What is in uh, greatest service to our community, to the people that we're, uh, that we're connected to. And really we've been pivoting for the last, you know, multiple months, really each day figuring out, so what does today look like and what do people need? And, okay, we're shifting here because it, you know, it's centered to everything we do is bringing people together and that's not been possible. So <laughs> having to just shift everything and, and that's been a lot of work, but um, constantly needing to be on our feet with that because, you know, initially there was a lot of energy around virtual programs and, and doing that. And then pretty quickly everyone realized they had to be on zoom all day long. And <laughs> yeah. so for work and it's like, well, um, if I don't have to do this thing then I won't do this thing. And there was lots of fatigue there. So, okay, we had to shift again. And, and so this week in some ways or the last, last couple of weeks have felt like that, that we're just, okay, we're shifting, we're moving. And, but in another way, this is, this kind of work is central to what we do that we're always wanting to bring diverse groups of, of people together. And uh, we have a, what's a initiative called our Muslim neighbor initiative. And so a significant part of our work is really helping people get to know their Muslim neighbors. Mm. And so one of the things that we're eager to help educate people around and have really important conversations around is systemic racism in general, mm -hmm. but then also talking about some of the connections between Islamophobia and anti-black or anti-brown racism and uh, seeing some of those connections there. So my hope is that some of the energy around these uh, unbelievably important issues that are very much in our face and they ought to be, and we ought never to not have them there, that that will help us uh, also look at other, other connected pieces like Islamophobia and see, you know, how, um, how these are linked and some of the common roots and then also some of the, the common solutions like ways to move forward uh, so that our future can look uh, prayerfully really differently. So, mm -hmm. so we're offering um, where we normally are bringing people together in homes for shared meals. We're doing that virtually right now to help give people space to talk about what's going on. Um, we, you know, a lot of those normal ways that we connect and get to explore things have been disrupted. And so still wanting to provide that. Uh, we're having book clubs around uh, different things that, you know, this month that reading a book called acting on faith. And so, listening to different people from uh, diverse religious perspectives and faith traditions talking about what from their tradition informs their activism and their justice work and where are their unique elements there? Where's their overlap? And there's always both. And I'm excited about having that conversation, doing a webinar to offer really uh, more of like an introductory look at systemic racism and um, for people who who have been saying maybe for the first time, okay, I'm listening, you know, yeah. I, I need to know more and I'm hearing that a lot right now, Oh yeah, which is great um, that people are, are there maybe in a way they haven't been before. So just trying to be in service in the best ways that we can. Oh, I love that, man. You're doing such important work, such difficult work, um, work that really requires you to humble yourself on a daily basis, I assume mm -hmm. as a white woman. Yeah, it, it is, it feels very much 
um, present to everything that I'm doing, right? Where I'm trying to do what, what is not needed from me, like what is mine to do. And, and as a white woman and with, with incredible amounts of privilege and finding myself in the majority in all sorts of ways, um, what am I invited to do? And then where am I invited to step back and to not speak and to not, you know, uh, always trying to hold us together. So even, you know, as we're looking at this webinar, my, my um, colleague and I were talking about, okay, what does it look like to take seriously um, what we hear so many people of color saying like to, uh, to white folks that it is not their burden <laughs> to educate us, right? Yeah. Like if we would ask that of them or demand that of them to explain things to us or educate us on uh, things that we need to know, then that is, is simply adding another burden that, that they just can't carry and ought never to have to. Mm-hmm. And so I want to take that seriously and in the same uh, token, I also want to take seriously uh, the importance of not holding the microphone longer than I should. Mm. And if I've been given access to a microphone, to pass that along to others who maybe have had less access for various reasons. And so mm-hmm. there's tension between those two. That's a really good tension to be in the midst of and something we want to take really seriously and pay attention. And you know, at times you feel fear of like, how do I balance that perfectly? Am I going to get, I want to get this perfectly. I'm not going to. And so I'm trying to daily let myself off the hook for that. And to just say, you know what, I'm being invited to show up, not show up perfectly. And so um, to kind of come as best as I'm able with kind of open hands and as much humility as I can muster uh, to know, yeah, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to flub this, you know, I'm not going to get this right but but the work is too important to then allow that to keep me totally silent or in my seat or you know whatever it may be yeah yeah um yeah i i am definitely in the camp of it's not that i'm just now awake to this although some of it i mean i think there's just so much so much racially driven um violence and oppression etc that um, we're just uh, some some people, some of us live our lives largely unaware of. Either it doesn't make it to the news, or we don't see the news, or whatever you know. Yeah. Um, and so I'm definitely in the group of um, I don't know. It's it's heightened on my awareness right now, and and I have turned to books um, and to mm-hmm. you know following some new Instagram accounts. Um, <clears throat> It doesn't feel like enough. I know it's never going to feel like enough, but I mean, I, over the weekend I was, you know, reading about the protest and um, thinking like, gosh, I wonder if there's anything happening in my own city. And I I found out on Monday there had been a march um, on Sunday. Um, And there were people commenting on there, you know, let me know when this happens next time. And and I don't know how that was advertised, but um, I, I feel that urge to do something to get involved. And at the same time, I'm, home with my four kids and yeah. my husband. And so I don't know if you have, I'm totally putting you on the spot, but I don't know if you have any ideas mm-hmm. also as a mom of young kids, like besides just getting some books and mm-hmm. listening to some new voices, which is really important. Like what, what else can we do? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a really essential question. And there's multiple pieces to it. The one I just want to name, cause I'm also a mom with littles and it's really easy to go into guilt mode that I'm not doing enough. I can't be at every March. I can't do whatever it is. 
because I, I, I got to breastfeed a 10 month old and that makes like, you know, that, that puts some limitations on what you can do, right? Like yep. that's a real reality. And there's a, a certain luxury that I would have had of time prior to you know, becoming a, a parent. And, um, I don't ever want that to like, th there could always be an excuse for not acting right that, well, I've got this and that going on. And I, and I don't, I don't at all mean to indicate that what I do want to say is that I want to be kind enough to myself to say, okay, here is your, here is your real situation. Like this is the as isness of your life. And rather than lamenting that and for the way that that could get in the way of other action or whatever it may be saying, taking stock of that situation saying, so in this life, like this, this is your life. And in that life, in this scenario, in this context, in this city, in this time, what are you being invited to, to do? What does that, what does that look like? Do it fully, yeah. show up fully. Uh, and then release myself from, from pressure of saying, but you're not doing enough, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I hear that voice regarding everything in my life. Like that's sort of the constant <laughs> refrain, right? Like you're not doing enough. And so I'm just trying to be mindful of that and, and uh, kind to myself. Mm -hmm. So that's a piece of it for me that feels very real because, because if I, if I do un injustice to myself in that process and make demands of myself that are um, not actually coming from a place of a desire to care for others, but just to meet my own ego still, right. To mm. be part of something, then I'm really not participating in justice work and justice efforts. I'm just still yeah. feeding my ego. I'm actually sowing injustice, even if on paper I'm trying to promote racial justice. Right. Wow. And I really try to, I want to be congruent in those ways and mm -hmm. take care of that sort of inner work. Um, that, that feels just as important to me, if not even more important than some of the action pieces, mm. um, because it informs on how I go, you know, do that action. So, uh, so that's part of it. That's part of what I'm, I'm thinking about in relation to your question. The other piece is it feels really important to be mindful of whether I'm looking at, um, the, the voices I listen to, the authors I read, the you know, musicians or, um, whose music I listen to or the, the art that I uh, observe and enjoy, like who's behind all of that and becoming aware of, of uh, just how white my, my world is, or at least mm. can be yeah. and wanting to keep that as diverse as I can um, for my own self, but then also right as a professor. Okay. If I'm looking at my book list, like what I'm assigning students is my, are my textbooks diverse or they are, are they, are, or are they at the same time that I am lamenting the lack of uh, diversity in certain ways in our churches or whatever it may be, am I still mirroring that lack of diversity in the books that I choose without <laughs> thinking about it, right? Yeah. Um, and so it just in every way, trying to be as congruent as I can be there. Um, and then I think honestly, the last thing that comes to mind is listening right now. And I don't mean that to say, listen, instead of acting, what I mean is, as a form of action, listen to the people of color who are right now saying, here are ways you can help, right? Yeah. Here, are, here are things you can do. They're going to know best. And so I've been seeing lots of things about here's ways to give money. Here are certainly, you know, um, marches and protests and those sorts of things. Here are black businesses. Um, here are books written by black people. And here are the black bookstores that you can buy them from. I mean... So I'm trying to listen to, yeah. to the, those, those voices who can say it a whole lot better than I can and who understand it a whole lot, a lot more.
Oh, that's so good. So important. Um, okay, let's, we're already really talking about it, but let's talk more specifically about the sermon. Uh, because when you and I talked about you preaching on the podcast, it was, you know, maybe sometime this summer, will it be Old Testament? Will it be New Testament? And then everything that's going on in the world, it was like, we're doing this now. And you had this sermon that you prepared a couple years ago mm-hmm. um, that was just so, so timely um, and gave us the gift of preaching that for us um, on the podcast today. And I should mention for the hearers, because a lot of times um, the podcasts are recorded weeks and weeks in advance. But today, as we were recording, it is Wednesday, June the 3rd. And as soon as Mallory and I are off the call, I'm going to edit this and get this up. This is our, it's an interruption to our regularly scheduled programming. We were going to have a different (laughs) episode today, but this is just so important that we talk about right now. So can you talk a bit about maybe about the circumstances when you first wrote this or kind of the connections and how it's been working on you um, in the meantime, just how, what, wherever, wherever you want to start to get into it. Yeah. I, I wrote it in February of 2018. And when you and I talked about a, you know, sermon to preach here, this, this came to mind. I just thought, damn, I don't, I don't know that there's anything in this sermon that I would have needed to write much differently if I wrote it this week. It it Mm. feels hauntingly (laughs) appropriate, right? That there's so much that's similar to it. And even the, particularly when I get into that sort of refrain about the, the routine sort of moderate replies to things. Oh yeah. They, it just feels just like the same now. I will say I, I've seen a little bit more pushback on some of those, um, even by maybe in some circles and from some folks that maybe two years ago didn't, like they would have just pushed the, the all lives matter thing and, and ended there. Uh-huh. Whereas I'm seeing, I'm seeing some softening on some of those lines and that's giving me some hope that I'm almost afraid to have, but I do have. Say more. What do you mean uh, some softening that you're seeing? Yeah, that, that, I guess I'm just, I'm really hearing a lot of people say I'm listening Mm. (laughs) and not even saying a whole lot more, just rather than getting into the defensive posture right away to pause and to say, I'm listening. Mm. And, and uh, I'm hearing that refrain, refrain a lot. And, and I vacillate in my response to, because on the one hand, especially a couple of weeks ago, I was so angry. I thought, what am I what am I so angry about? And this was even before the, the murder of George Floyd, but, but after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And I was able to kind of narrow down that my anger is that it took a video for people to actually be convinced. And even still, some could still justify it, uh, amazingly so, but uh, that it took a video for many white people to say, oh, well, clearly this was wrong. Because mm-hmm. without video, we just... Uh, by we, I mean white people, um, very, just too easily side with (laughs) the person that we look most like or have the most connections to in a story and tend to not believe the real embodied experiences of black and brown people. It's just too easy to dismiss and to go, well, you know, let's, let's hear everyone's story and listen to it. And and I'm not about like rushing to something for its own sake, but I am, I do feel so much resistance to the 
to, I feel resistance to the white resistance uh, of wanting to listen to and believe black stories. Yeah. And there's something about this right now, this round of murders with the murders that it feels that way, right? That, um, that there's video evidence of these two that were the closest and that maybe it's, it has forced us to say, we no longer have those defenses mm. And we have to acknowledge, like, you can't look at that video and not acknowledge that what happened um, in a way that we've been able to before. And so I do see some softening there that maybe for the first time for many of us, we've been exposed to something that it's like, oh, this is so horrific. How could this have happened? And then you hear people of color going, yeah, this is just our neighborhood, right? Like yeah. this is what it's like to to try to drive my car, walk down the streets or live in my house and wear the skin that I do. This is every day. Um, I think we've been forced to see some of those things in a way that maybe we haven't before. And it feels like I see, at least in the circles that I'm exposed to, I see more of a softening than I've seen in years past where it was much more... Um, the assumption that everything you're saying must be anti-cop, um, the, you know, the, the push that, okay, no, all lives matter. And you know, th- those sorts of points of resistance, they still exist right now, but, but it seems to me less so. And th- mm-hmm. that is giving me some, some uh, sense of encouragement. Good. Good. Wow. Um, I feel like we've covered so much um, and so much heavy stuff. Um, yeah, I tend to do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so where, um, I don't know, where do we go from here? What, um, what have I not asked you about the sermon that I needed to, or what, what final word do you want to offer about it or about this topic or statement about the world that we're living in? Bring us home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can hear in the sermon that I preach, you know, having written it two years ago, this sort of desire to keep myself honest. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I feel that just as much right now. And that's not easy. Like, I would much prefer to um, invest energy in polishing my ego and curating my image and ensuring that I'm showing up on the right side of things Mm -hmm. and that people see that I'm one of the good ones that, you know, all of that bullshit. And I, I want to keep myself honest in that to constantly look at what motivates me here because it's always mixed. It is always mixed. Like there is a sincere desire to see uh, all persons flourish, right? And to see systemic racism dismantled. Like I, in my bones, I feel that. And there are all sorts of other mixed motives that always go along with that. And so I want to be honest with myself, not because that means then, okay, well now I need to go away to a, a convent for two years and really purify myself from all of that though. I mean, that's probably not a bad idea given what goes on inside of me. Right. Um, <laughs> but the old breastfeeding thing comes back again. So here I am, right. <laughs> I don't have that option. Um, uh, but, and so it's not to say that this is then an excuse for inaction, but rather I continue to, and, and especially in this last year, I have felt this strong urge to, to hold together the essential 
pieces of contemplation and action. And that those are not opposing forces, that this is not a, a dichotomy, but rather these are the two sides of the exact same coin and the one ought to inform the other and, and vice versa. And so I love the Jesuit notion of contemplation being a long, loving look at the real. It is this notion of be, having your feet very much rooted to the ground, the ground underneath you, the space around you, the people around you, and, and taking this long, loving look at the real, at what is. And then looking internally as well, like this long, loving look at what is in, internal to you and, and who you are and what you bring. And being honest about that, like being honest about the injustices that you see externally and also being honest with myself about the injustices I see internally. And I find that the more that I've invested in being kind to myself about those internal injustices or my, uh, my incongruent uh, you know, parts, um, like I talk about in the sermon, right? The difference between what I say on in a paper and what I do in my life. Like it's not, and I'm not trying to accept those. That's not what this is about, but I start from a place of kindness. And I'm finding that that's then informing the ways I then respond in action because rather than coming out from a place of ego with guns blazing and fingers pointing to say, this person is acting in racist ways or, or this person just doesn't get it or, you know, whatever. Um, I find the energy behind the things I say is constantly shifting and comes from a different place. And, and it's not any less of, um, wanting to be honest and critique what needs to be critiqued. That's, I, that, that has to be the case, right? Look at our prophetic tradition in the Hebrew scriptures. They don't, they don't shy away from critique when it's, yeah. when it's needed. But my desire is that it would come from a place where I, I have uh, my hand on my own pulse while I'm doing it. And mm -hmm. I know it goes on inside of me and I'm, I'm extending kindness to myself there in a way that I'm able to hold out kindness to others as we're moving together and learning together. Mm -hmm. That feels really important that, that uh, I can't get away from that. I haven't been able to the last couple of years. And so maybe even as a helpful kind of plug, cause I know a lot of people are asking right now, what, what do we read? What are resources? The book that I've been reading the last few weeks is called the inner work of racial justice, healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. It's by a woman named Rhonda McGee. Hmm. And I find that to be essential. It's, it's, you know, I have all these other books that offer incredible content and information and I hope everyone reads every one of those books. And yeah, can we read them and engage um, what they ask us to do in a mindful way uh, that, that feels like what's going to be required of us if we're ever to move forward into the kingdom, into beloved community, into a different future. Wow. I love that. Um, I want to get into Enneagram stuff, but I, but I fear we've already, we've already gone a long time. And I don't know what people's attention span is. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop us there um, and say, thank you. I love that idea of the, um, the contemplation and action as two sides of a coin and the, the long loving look um, at what is um, both externally and internally. And, yeah. and I'll just say, you're not a one on the Enneagram, so you can do that <laughs> for the, the ones <laughs> with that inner critic, man, it's so hard. It's hard to look um, non-judgmentally at ourselves. 
um, or others. Um, Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get the resources that you've mentioned linked up in the show notes and I cannot wait to have you back. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will see you next time you're back. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.